My name is Claire Hemmings and I'm Director of the Gender Institute here at LSE. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event, Gay Liberation Now, Global Movements and Transformations, and uh, to introduce uh, and welcome this evening's speaker, Sonia Correa, who we are delighted could join us from Brazil. This evening's event, uh, as many of you I think know at this point, uh, is part of the two-day conference, 40 Years On, Where Are LGBT Rights, which celebrates the Gay Liberation Front's 40th anniversary back here at LSE where the GLF began and where the Hall Carpenter archives are held. Sonia's reflections will provide us with an opportunity to reflect on many of the issues raised throughout the day today and to look forward to tomorrow's events. So the second part of the conference is tomorrow, and if you uh, haven't been at the conference as a whole today, uh, then please do uh, pick up a program for tomorrow. And uh, if you're uh, not able to come to all of it, you can come to one or two panels or just drop in and so on. It's an early start. It's 8.45 in the morning. Uh, but uh, Hakan assures me that there will be coffee and enormous numbers of cakes uh, <laughs> there from e considerably earlier than that. So you don't need to eat breakfast and come. You come and eat breakfast. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, the, they're just over there if you haven't got a program. So before introducing Sonia properly, let me thank the supporters of this uh, event, uh, Stickered, which is an acronym I'm not going to detail, uh, Departments of Social Policy, Sociology, Geography and the Environment and the Gender Institute. You see how popular LGBT rights are at LSE. Uh, and also the organising committee of the Two Gay Day Conference, Sue Donnelly, Hakan Sekhan Elgin, Suki Ali and Sharad Chari. Uh, let me also um, take the opportunity to thank the participants in today's event as well. Um, who have generously shared with us their work on archiving LGBT lives in South Africa, Italy and uh, London and through the Witness Seminar have shared their memories of uh, the Gay Liberation Front and begun, I think, very uh, movingly to connect memories to possibilities and limitations in our lives then and today. Uh, and certainly from my own point of view, listening to people speaking um, this afternoon, uh, one of the things that I was really reminded of is the ways in which we tend to think of LGBT um, rights, uh, movements, claims for liberation as a kind of progress narrative, and it's quite clear that that's not the case, that actually there's a particular quality to GLF which is unique and which actually could use some reclamation. Um, I'm the, the, as I say, the, the session was immensely moving, and I, I'm, for one, very proud to have been able to hear people's connected and diverging stories, and I hope we'll be able to continue that conversation this evening. Um, so this evening's event hopes to participate in these stories by asking about global possibilities and prohibitions with respect to sexual activism and rights, and to move us seamlessly, we hope, into tomorrow's focus on international and transnational movements and sticking points. And I think many of the same questions as people were asking today will also be asked this evening and tomorrow. Um, Simon Watney said earlier in the witness seminar that, I hope this is uh, an okay quote, uh, nothing happens without the work of people, unquote. And this, to me, is the perfect way to introduce Sonia Career, who has been a writer <coughs> and activist on issues of gender equality, health and sexual rights for over 30 years. Sonia worked for 17 years as the research con coordinator 
for Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights at Dawn, Development Alternatives with Women for a New Era, which is a southern, based, uh, a southern hemisphere based feminist network engaging with and intervening in the developments of sexual rights agendas through, for example, the Cairo and Beijing conferences. Uh, and uh, is now um, co-coordinator of Sexual Policy Watch, which is a global forum of uh, researchers and activists. Uh, and in conversation with Sonia, she was saying that this is her main work uh, at the moment and the most important. She is a widely published authority on sexual uh, and reproductive rights from, importantly, a feminist perspective and co-author of the landmark text, Sexuality, Health and Human Rights, with Richard Parker and Ros Pachetsky. Um, tonight, I believe she'll be talking to you about the difficulties, or some of the things I, I've gleaned from conversation, uh, of translating theory into practice and the importance of holding on to a feminist analysis to resist state restrictions on sexual movements. I think she'll speak for around 30 minutes, is that right? Uh, and then we'll uh, have uh, open dialogue uh, and discussion um, for up to an hour and a half or so. <laughs> no, another hour, I mean, not going to be here till nine o'clock. Uh, and then around eight, uh, we'll retire, and I hope you'll join us, to the rather lovely Shaw Library um, on the sixth floor of uh, the old building, which is just opposite. You can always follow any one of us for drinks and nibbles, uh, with quite a few nibbles, I believe. Yes. <laughs> so please join me in welcoming, uh, and apologies for my very long introduction, uh, Sonia Korea. Well, good evening. Um, I must say that it's a real pleasure to be with you today. I want to thank Claire for having suggested my name from what I understand and the organizers. <clears throat> who invited me. It has been a privileged opportunity to be here with you today. I was really thrilled, and I told some people with the discussion in the afternoon, uh, which, among other, has cheered my own memories um, and have brought up very nice memories from those times as well. Uh, I want to start reminding you something or telling you something that you may not know, is that this session was originally designed to have both me and Dennis Altman in a dialogue. Uh, that would be lovely, because I don't meet Dennis very often, but each time we meet, we both agree and disagree, <laughs> and, but we have a very good synteny among ourselves, and in fact, maybe 10 years ago, we thought of creating a coalition of uh, sexual rights thinkers and activists from the Capricorn, Tropic of Capricorn, because we were discussing North and South tensions, and we found out that we are living in the same tropic. So it's really unfortunate that he's not here today, and particularly because his partner is not well. Hmm? So I find myself in the difficult position of, of having to discuss with my own self, but also uh, I have to tell you that, as I told Claire in my email, because of my schedule of work, I have not really prepared a full composed lecture for you. What I bring is really a sort of cartography, uh, quite sketchy, of gains, limitations, pitfalls, and challenges of our endeavors in the realms of sexuality and politics and sexuality and rights. 
and maybe the title should not be Gay libera Liberation, should be LGBT Liberation and Sexual Rights Now. Mm -hmm. uh, I will try as I speak, to weave some of my th thoughts with ideas and questions that have been raised during the day. And I'll try to be brief because I really want us to continue a collective discussion as it, we have started in the afternoon. Before getting into substance, I think it's important and necessary to tell from where I speak hmm? more, in more detail. Yes. I'm Brazilian, I'm based in Brazil, but I also experienced the biographical accident of having had a North American mother born from a Russian-Ukrainian migrated family to the US. Probably because of that, but not just because of that, I found myself in the last 20 to 25 years located in a difficult, in a privileged, but not always a comfortable location of being a sort of interpreter of localities and globalities. Um, and it's out of that location that I would try to share with you some ideas, which is, as I said, privileged because I see too many things, but at the same time, I frequent feel just like I'm nowhere. <laughs> and speaking from nowhere is always a little bit complicated. Um, lastly, uh, particularly after um, the afternoon session, I think I need to tell you that I did not enter this world exactly from or directly from a struggle around my own sexual identity, as many of you had and have so beautifully told the story today. I did it through my early fascination as a young woman in the times of sex, drugs, and rock and roll with sexuality as both a personal and a political issue. And a bit later, already as a young feminist, uh, in the early days of Brazilian democratization, when differently from today, women's lib, gays lib, prostitution rights claims were part of the same landscape. And we were struggling, everybody, for rights. And not just our rights, but democratic rights in the country. Then in the 90s and 2000, I, departing from a global feminist platform that was dawn, I plunged, plunged into the waters of sexuality and human rights debates at the global level. And it's this past that led me more entirely into the LGBTQIA. In Brazil, we call that the soup of letters. Huh? There's, in fact, there's a book about the story of the movement in Brazil that is called the soup of small letters. From these combined locations, when I examine the current landscape, and here I'm talking of the last 20 years. I'm placing my time framework from Beijing, the conference of Beijing in 95. Not by accident, it was because I was there, yes, <laughs> but also because this is the place where for the first time some normative UN language on sexuality and rights was adopted, the famous paragraph 96, that talks about the human rights of women 
in relation to sexuality. Uh, either I look from that time or even from the 40 years time of the seminar, I think that all of us, we agree that there are many, many gains. Hmm? Uh, I want to start with theorizing and knowledge. Uh, in the late 70s, when I started this journey more systematically, we wrestled with a relatively limited number of classical texts to sort out the enigmas of sexuality and politics and economics. And we can list them. Huh? We had Engels, and we had uh, Margaret Mead, and we had Freud, and we had Reich, and then we had Marcuse. Huh? It was not much. Huh? And then we, we, we had Beauvoir, and then the, the early feminists, Kate Millett. When we compare with what we have today, it's just amazing. Huh? The amount of theorizing and research out there is gigantic. I have realized, and I'm accustomed to the idea that I would never catch up again. Huh? It's impossible for anyone. Hmm? Uh, if we shift the focus to normal and legal frameworks, the list is also quite impressive. Is it true that we have not achieved since Beijing to have another normative, more binding and strong definition on sexuality and human rights? In fact, all we have had are battles. But this does not mean that the debate has gone on. People are sitting out there in the UN in New York, in Geneva, in the Human Rights Council, struggling, huh? voicing, fighting. Huh? And we have also an incredible amount of change taking place in the live world. And I just want to illustrate that, and everybody in the room, I think, have examples to provide by things that I have been engaged or are very close to myself. Like in, 1990, in 2007, we have, and you may have heard of that, um, elaborated a chart of principles for human rights and sexual orientation and gender identity, the Yoya Carter principles. And by accident, a sort of accident, I was the co-chair of that meeting, which was also a privilege. And for me, it's amazing that a year later, in 2008, without any specific funding, without any specific push from the initiators, there were more than 30 translators, translations of the Yoyakata principles, including in local language. Huh? It's amazing. Uh, I like to, to mention the Japanese story of, uh, the example of the Japanese translation because in 2009, we found out that in Japan, the principles had been translated spontaneously by somebody in vernacular Japanese, which is daily language, which is totally different from the very formalized legal Japanese. So the principles were translated into legal Japanese after it was translated by somebody who thought that that was useful for his or her or their life. I can mention the Idaho campaign, 
that I have been following a little bit closer, this is amazing what is happening there. I don't know if you're following. There are events taking place all over the world, including UN functionaries have put up a video requesting equal treatment, saying the UN is promoting human rights everywhere, but not at home. It's a very, very nice video. Or I can think of what I think is very impressive in the last five to, to seven years, the global emergence of the transgender movement, and particularly the campaign against trans pathologization, that I think is one of the most important events in this area. Uh, and I can give you other examples. Just like last week, I, I came across in the internet on this beautiful blog done by this young Syrian lesbian writing from Damascus and telling everybody in the blog that the, Syri the state police came to, to pick her up and her father was in the door, stepped saying, no way that you're going to take my daughter. I think I, this is just the tips of the icebergs. And I think it's amazing because even t 20 years ago, we could not imagine that. It's not that things will not happen. Our mindset was not prepared for that proliferation and mushrooming of experiences. Is this that allows me to say that sexual politics is today a domain where multiple global, national, local arenas and interactions coexist? They may be fraught by heterotopies, contradictions, fault lines. There are multiple interpreters of what is going on and their attentions about the language and the vocabulary we are using and the interpretations. But yet, there are intense flows of shared semantics and shared understandings. And I think this is the, the sea we are navigating. I think that recognizing this blossoming, as the session this afternoon told us, should not imply the erasure of what was there before. Huh? Because there's so much going on now that we tend to say, oh, this is the beginning of everything. It's not the case. Uh, we've heard this afternoon what was going on 40 years ago, and if we delve a little bit more, we will find things in the 20s and the 30s and in the 19th century, and I think to keep that memory alive is also very important. But even so, in the last 20 years, or the 40 years, we are experiencing the intensification, increasing circulation of people, of image, of discourses, and also dislocations that are very important. Huh? Particularly the dislocation of sexuality as politics from the extremities to the centers of power. Uh, and I think it's necessary to investigate what, in, what were the conditions in which these trends in terms of intensification, multiplication, dislocation are involving in relation to the paradoxical features of our times. Not that our times are wo much worse than they were in the past. In the afternoon when people were talking about GLF, I was thinking, gosh, these were very hard times, huh? This was still the Cold War, huh? 
the threat of atomic nuclear bombing was there. There was the Vietnam War. It, it were not easy times. But yet, our times are very paradoxical, and I think it's important to locate sexual politics in relation to that. I, this is the London School of Economics. I don't need to go too much into that, but I think it's important to sketch what are the main features of these times. The primacy of markets and technoscience as triggers of change, how these forces are intersecting with inequalities within and across countries, but as well class inequality, race inequality, ethnic inequality, gender inequality, case divisions, population mobility and environmental risks. From the point of view of sexual politics, one key element of this scenario, in my view, concerned these effects, the effects of these forces on states as regulators, as providers, as protective bodies. In particular, because in this era, while states appear to have lost much of their capacities to govern, in particular, the economy, as they used to, did, to do in the past, we also witnessed the gradual expansion and infiltration of novel tenets of public security as the main paradigm of governance. And this is happening globally, but also in my own country, where now you may not have heard, but we have the police occupying the slum areas in Rio, and everybody's applauding because crime is lowering, etc. One side of that, one effect of that, is that another pervasive and perverse trait of our times is the pr proliferation of situations of perennial emergency, what the th theoreticians are calling states of exception, to which large sectors of the population is sub subjected in daily life. If states appear to have lost their capacity to provide for their well-being, the security apparatus is strengthened, and extra-constitutional powers, the power to punish, the power to eliminate, are used more and more often. Last but not least, another unequivocal feature of this landscape is the sad return of the religious in the form of dogmatism. Dogmatic religious forces are crossing all religious traditions. It's not a privilege of Christian tradition, unfortunately. They are everywhere devoted to exert pressure on states, institutions, and the global governance process. They are sitting in the UN each time that sexuality and gender is being discussed. And this return, sad return, sad and sad, return, redefine the ways the contours of biopolitics were drawn or as we used to think of them on the basis of Michel Foucault. And it was not my plan to expand much on this because this is in fact a whole topic in itself. But because of the discussion we had in the morning, I think that <clears throat> I want to add something which is not in my paper, but is that the role play, the negative, the obstacle created by dogmatic religious forces at this point is so huge and it's capturing so much our attention with 
very negative effects. One of these effects is that we are not paying enough attention to the plurivocality of religious voices. They are hijacking the religious communities and the religious positions on sexuality. And this is something we need to try to reverse in our thinking. And the other thing is that because they are everywhere and they are pestering us so much in each and every stop and place that we are somehow forgetting that there are also secular controls and disciplining of sexuality. They have not gone. And science and technology is one domain that is out there, as the trans community is going to tell you constantly. And we have to think of this picture as both religious, dogmatic religious forces, but also secular and scientific forces that are very problematic for us. Uh, also, against this scenario, the contemporary trajectory of sexual politics that we have to celebrate because there's so much going on raises some interrogations. For instance, we have to ask what are the conditions that enabled amidst so many fault lines, so many problems, so much inequality that sexual politics is blossoming across the world. I think that here is certainly useful and productive to recall the, the authors who underline that in late modernity, political contestation is not anymore exclusively triggered as an effect of or in relation to structural forces. It's not just politics and economics. It can be driven and tortured by both structural changes and emotional triggers, sentiments of belonging, attachments to memories, or in the case of sexual politics, unmapped synergies deriving from the way in which embodiment relate to norms and the emotional desire for freedom and sexual autonomy. I think that the stories that we have heard in the afternoon are a marvelous illustration of that. But this is the bright side. The literature also speaks of intersections between the recent expansion and absorption of citizenship and human rights discourse by a wide variety of new actors like feminists, LGBTQA subjects, and the parallel hegemony of market-oriented paradigms. How much human rights discourse and conversations has to do with the market-oriented economy. They, some authors also connect our blossoming of difference of identity politics with the privatization and fragmentation of the public sphere, which are seen as these authors as signs of depolitization. And I think this has to be put on the table and we may want to discuss it. Uh, and I, since we wrote the book and published the book in 2008, I have this question turning up on my head and maybe it's a good opportunity to discuss. For me, it's very intriguing why sexual politics is on the rise and mobilizing, even today, so much energy in the most different locations around the world when politics itself is going down corruption, discredit, 
There's a mystery, there's an enigma there that I would really like to discuss with you. Hmm? Uh, but my main topic of discussion, what I want to bring to discussion today is less that than the limitations, discussions, contradictions that, I, that we, we analyze in the book and we see as palpable in the intersections between sexual politics and human rights our engagements with norm formation and our engagement with the states in its variations. Um, as I said before, today sex is not anymore in the extremities of disciplining devices and power. They are at the very center, in the big boxes of power. This gives high visibility to sexual subjects, a circumstance that creates new terrains for resistance, change, but also unsuspected devices of control. I think we need to ask, what does it mean to be so visible in the big boxes of power? And I want to go directly to Michel Foucault in his lectures that led to the history of sexuality because there's a point in the book Society Must Be Defended when he asked the question. He says, we have to admit these days that those, that in modernity, those who are submitted to sex subjectification by the state and disciplinary devices would eventually find themselves making resource to the idea of sovereign right as a solution to restore the spaces of freedom. And I think that injunction, visualized by Foucault in the late 70s, is now with us and in, in, in much more deeper and complex ways. As we do know, Foucault himself was very pessimistic <laughs> about that resource. I'm not so deeply pessimistic, but yet I do think that we should not side, lose sight of the risks and limits when we navigate this vast shifting and contexted terrain of human rights or citizenship rights and sexuality, both at the global level and also at the national level. Uh, in the book, Sexuality, Health, and Human Rights, if you have the opportunity to read it, we devote much attention to this disjunction or conjunction and we try to examine both the relevance and limitations of human rights discourse and work in relation to, sex, to sexuality. One main inspiration of our reflection comes from Derrida when he says that we must, il faut, more than ever stand on the side of human rights, but they are never sufficient. In the book, the arguments we develop in relation to this insufficiency and imprecedibility are developed in, four, in relation to four dimensions. The first is that we emphasize that rights are rights, are not simply consumers' protection or benevolent gifts. Rights also imply state duties. And because of that, it's important to remind that States, despite the reconfiguration they have experienced in the last 20 years, 
remain both the source of protection of rights and the main violators of human rights. And we navigate that contradiction. States violate rights both through omission, when they do not protect the rights, but also through action. And achieving or gaining rights is never the end of the battle. Usually a new battle starts all over again. The second argument pulls over the various threads of critical interrogation that have been floating in the room this afternoon about sexual citizenship as assimilation, as normalization, as mere adjustment to the contingent prerogatives granted by the liberal state. We also raise interrogations in respect to this dominant imagination coming from other authors that citizenship rights are concentric circles, that you expand rights huh? from the bourgeoisie down to the black Brazilian trans person doing sex work, huh? street walking. This is a very dominant imagination on rights, and I think we should interrogate. Because each time that you include somebody, you exclude somebody, or you exclude one dimension. So this inclusion in concentric circles is always maybe and probably recreating otherness and eventually abjection. And in particular, in regard to sexuality, this is very common because it's very easy that you dislocate the figures of sex. And there's this Brazilian researcher, my friend Sergio Cajara, that reminds that, okay, the homosexual man or even the lesbian woman are not anymore the bad figures of sex, but we now have new figures of sex emerging. The pedophile, the violent man, so it's a very tricky business of inclusion and exclusion. The third dimension concerns the fact that sexual politics evolves in, as I said before, an untenable coexistence of human rights, citizenship norms, state obligations, and states of exceptions. The list of paradoxes we experience in relation to this conjunction is very, very long. In the book, we examine particularly the case of Abu Gabri and Guantanamo. But here, I want to talk of Colombia, where the most progressive constitutional court in the region, and probably one of the most progressive constitutional courts in the world, has been issuing groundbreaking decisions on abortion rights, same-sex civil, same civil unions, restriction on early surgery of intersex children, a decision, a very old decision of 95, and even they issue a recent deci decision that the Plan Colombia, you know what is the Plan Colombia, which is the unlawful intervention in Colombia, is not constitutional. Hmm? Yet, the country, in the country, vast territories and numerous people live in state of exception submitted to the arbitrary rules and violence of state and non-state actors that define what is the law and justice. This effect 
very clearly people of non-conforming sexualities. The number of trans people killed by both paramilitaries and, and the police in Colombia is, is just a scandal. Um, we can talk also, maybe it's not exactly the same, but Mexico and Brazil, very similar. Huh? The situation in Mexico at this point is state of exception is more the rule than, than non-rule, and at the same time you have the courts and you have legislation delivering sexual rights properly. The last line of reflection we do in the book is a meditation on the limits of the human in the human rights discourse. It focuses, inspired mainly on the thinking by trans thinkers and activists on the depth and the problematic imprint of the gender binary of human rights. When you say human, you say man or woman. There's no space for nothing in between. And we also develop out of that in, in a meditation about the abject nature of what is not men or women, we develop a thinking about the limitations of the anthropocentric nature of human rights. Are we talking just about humans? Or we can start thinking about our coexistence with other beings that are not human. These conceptual discussions are critical in my view, and there's enough food for thought just in this very brief notes that I share with you to spend the rest of the evening or even a whole week talking about them. And we could do so now, but I could not resist because of my location between thinking, writing, and doing politics to raise here more pedestrian problems of sexual politics as real politics. These conceptual and epistemological questions are key, but I want really to bring us down to basic questions of daily life. A few years ago, I used the term crossing the red line on a paper that I wrote about sexual rights. And the idea of the red line was to project almost graphically the notion that we were entering a terrain of risks and challenges. We have moved over the line of danger. And I'd chosen that title because since Beijing, and I was part of the group that was there, bravely engaged until three in the morning, trying to get that sexual rights language from that document. And I, we got out of Beijing very, very happy because finally we had language on sexuality and human rights, even when the language on sexual orientation was dropped. We had a definition of sexuality and human rights. And we were just celebrating. And maybe six months later, I went to a conference in Denmark and was totally appalled and shocked to hear a gay researcher from the UK lambasting that piece of language saying correctly that the first part of the paragraph was 
nice and good. It was enough to take out women and say the human rights of people include their right to exert the sex their sexuality free from coercion, violence. But the second part was totally heterosexual. And we have not realized that. We have not thought about that. So since then, I think that when we move into the domain of norm formation, we have to be very careful about what we put in a text. It can be a UN text, it can be a national legislation, it can be a local norm. We have to be very careful. For instance, in the case of sexual rights related reforms, I want to bring back to your attention the two-decade old brilliant analysis of Jackie Alexander about the reform of the Sexual Offense Act in Trinidad Tobago that was revisited recently by Jasmine Tambia. It's certainly an exemplary tale. Hmm? They wanted to do something beautiful, repeating the, the UK experience and what they got. They got the entrenchment of sodomy laws in that outcome, including expanding from man to woman, because this was equality. Hmm? The case is exemplary among others, because tells a lot about the potential fault lines among ourselves, the potential subjects of sexual rights. Here there was a clear fault line between the feminists pushing for the punishment of sexual offenses and the absence of a non-conforming sexuality voice there, and this was picked up by the political dynamics. I can tell you of the Brazilian current discussion, and I know Arturo in the debate can help me with that. We have a pending law provision in Brazil on a law aimed at criminalizing homophobia. The law built on a previously existent law from the 50s, reformed in the early 80s, that defines racism as a crime. It's old text. And what the LGBT movement did was just to add homophobia. This became a battlefield because of many reasons. First of all, because differently from what was told this morning in South Africa, it was not a collective discussion about hate crimes. It was pushed exclusively by the LGBT movement in a sort of narcissistic almost line of work. It triggered the immediate reaction of the dogmatic religious forces and was captured by a very complicated spiral and correct from the point of view of some actors, there's a business of freedom of speech there that was not taken into consideration. So we are caught up with that. And we need to be very careful when we move into that terrain. Another pedestrian facet of this same picture concerns the ways in which states are presently not just policing reacting and responding negatively to sexuality, but they are already playing with sexual rights claims. And I want to give examples. 
But before going into that, I want to make a brief note of caution in, in respect to how states are perceived. Huh? I think there's a state as an abstraction, as is defined by the theories, either by Marx or by the neoclassical economists. But people perceive states differently in different political cultures. And this is not a minor issue. There's a huge gap or difference between the state as the necessary evil from the Anglo-Saxonic tradition and mainly the US down to the ways in which, for instance, Latin America, the state is very appraised as a protective entity, as a provider of benefits. So when talking about states, I think location and, and inter local meanings is very important. Mm -hmm. But taking that in mind, keeping that in the back of our minds, I'm going to get back to what states are now doing with respect to sexuality. The better known portrayal is the typical sexual moral panics. Huh? States pulling up something and creating a moral panic to appease other anxieties. I think that, by and large, what is happening in the African countries, Uganda, Nigeria, can be explained through that. I'm not saying that there are not state actors that are homophobic, there are, but what I see is much more the state playing with the force it has with a sentiment in society and using it to create confusion in the perception and creating an enemy. Huh? a law, the, the criminal law of the enemy in this case, gay people, LGBT people. That in the case of Uganda led to the tragic assassination of David Cato. But there are other forms of state performativity. Um, while I was preparing these notes, I got by mail and totally by accident the invitation for a conference titled In and Out of sexual democracies, called by the Italian group Facciamo. And it's interesting that it's coming from Italy and nowhere else in Europe. I'm looking to Sylvia because it's related with what she told us about the politics in Italy. And I want to read to you one piece of that invitation, which says, the implementation and institutionalization of feminist and LGBTIQ issues in many European countries have been translated into sexual policies that have improved the lives of many women, women lesbian, gays, and transsexuals. But there is a critical element of contradiction here. In particular, we want to disclose the ways in which sexual politics can be turned into tools for a system that uses them to justify its war for hegemony. We define a sexual democracy, we, de we say that a sexual democracy can also become a regime of justifications where discourses that credit the recognition of sexual citizenship as a distinguished mark of the superiority of the West coexist and 
is interwoven with imperialist and nationalistic discourses that legitimize this supposed superiority. We may not fully agree with this analysis, but in the whole, I think it's pulling out to a very critical point. And I like both the idea of in and out sexual democracies, and I really will use from now on the idea of regime of justification, because it's a very smart formulation. And it's very clear that those types of states, when you think in terms of globalization, are not disconnected. Huh? It's not so easy to say they are homophobic states and non-homophobic states. Among other, because there's lots of other connections at other levels of politics and economics that connect the good non-homophobic states of Europe or the US and the homophobic states of Africa, let's say. And my dear friend, Ross Petrescu, is just finalizing a very interesting case about Uganda, where she looks into the many other elements of the Uganda context that it's not showing up in the calls for Uganda. Huh? She's talking about militarization, the US money for the military, the Chinese money for the economics, how Museveni is playing around with that. Hmm? In my own region, we see a different pattern of this typology. The first, and once again I'm going to go to Colombia, but this applies elsewhere, is what Franklin Gill, a Colombian researcher, has written about, is the government of differences. The state calls for and govern difference or diversity, more or less through the old established framework of ethnic minorities. Is the state responding, calling for responding to and creating differentiation? Hmm? So you have the specific problems for programs for everybody. You have for indigenous people and black people and women and LGBT people and this and that. Although the dynamics in Brazil and Mexico is a little bit more complex, but there are parallels to be drawn. The problem to be addressed here is not just the way the state conceptually operates this differential in its own benefit. Frequently, it's very populistic or demagogic. But it's mostly that on the side of the counter, on our side, we have not done further efforts to address the intersectionalities across these differentiations. Hmm? We have not been able to connect these specific demands, specific rights, claims, and universal rights premises. Hmm? So is, is instrumentality by the state? Yes, but there's a gap on our side. Hmm? Uh, And the question that is raised is, what rights are we claiming? Are we claiming merely our specific rights? Can we think that sexual rights can be granted in the landscapes we are living that are fraught with inequalities? Hmm? 
As you may know, Brazil has, and I'm going to go to Brazil now, um, Brazil has, the Supreme Court has decided finally, and I'm very happy about that, that civil, same-sex civil unions can, are constitutional. And this is a decision from two weeks ago. It's great, it's marvelous, we are very happy. Huh? But I have to ask questions. How far this decision will affect or not the scandalous figures in gays, lesbians, and transgender murders and the impunity that surrounds those cases? Is going to irradiate or is going to be retained just at the level of people being able to marry, which is important, but it's not enough, it's not sufficient. Huh? Can it help addressing the current problem experienced by HIV-positive people, particularly young and older gay men, or MSM, in the access to treatment and health care. Because unfortunately, Brazil, that was a model in terms of the HIV response, we experienced dramatic shortcuts. Because the health system is not doing well, and particularly the HIV program is in fault. Uh, the other troubling pattern that we see in Latin America is that right now we see the states performing modern, contemporary, nice and good with respect to certain aspects of the sexual rights agenda and throwing the other pieces into the garbage or into the hands of the police. This is particularly evident with respect to the fraction from the state's action and discourse in relation to LGBT rights on the one hand and abortion rights and sex work on the other. And I'm going to give you examples because here I think we need to name. In Brazil, in Uruguay, in Argentina, in El Salvador, started off in Nicaragua, in Dominican Republican. These are all countries where you see the state and state actors, legislators, either approving legislation, anti-discrimination, same-sex relations, like in Argentina, or eliminating criminal law, as in the case of Nicaragua, that eliminated sodomy law, and at the same time, prohibited any, any possibility of abortion. This was done in the same penal code reform in 2007. And then you see countries that have never been very friendly to LGBT issues, like Dominican Republic and, and El Salvador, adopting last year Idaho. They have now a formal International Day Against Homophobia. And these are other two countries where abortion is not permitted in any case. Uruguay has adopted same-sex civil, same civil union a long time ago, without much fuss. It was very easy. And the legalization of abortion is pending since 2007 because the former president said he was going to veto the law. And the current president just is repeating the same pattern. The same applies in Brazil. I'm not, I'm not going to go to talk about sex work because it's 
still much more problematic. All countries are going into the business of trafficking control without human trafficking control, without taking any attention to the collateral effects this may have on the lives of sex, work, sex workers that are mainly women but not just women. Lots of trans people in our region depend and live of sex work. Hmm? <clears throat> and there's also this tricky thing about states using LGBT rights and their progressive position with that to wash out from the picture other human rights violations. And I can give the example of my own country that is doing faring so well with respect to LGBT rights, but yet we are really still experience horrendous violations, basic human rights violations as torture, extrajudicial executions, people being evicted from land because of the main development projects being implemented by a left-wing government. So we have to position ourselves in relation to those contradictions. And the same games are at play in the global arena. And I want to share, you, share with you something that uh, has really, is really moving me since the last months, more or less, a little bit less. As you may know, since 2000, the UN Special Rapporteurs on Extrajudicial Summary and Arbitrary Executions have been including very positively cases and figures on the extrajudicial execution of LGBTQI people. In fact, it was this that triggered the very first LGBT human rights report issued by Amnesty International in 2001, which is a groundbreaking piece of writing. Since then, few states have been trying to make those rapporteurs to take out the term sexual orientation from those documents. Continuously, each time that the rapporteurs present, some states come and say, we don't want that language, this is not human rights, blah, blah, blah. Last November, the rapporteur, the present rapporteur, Philip Austin, presented his report, and Benin, on behalf of the African group, plus some Arab countries, in the, in the third committee of the General Assembly, moved to delete the, world, the word sexual orientation from that piece of writing. And the motion passed for the first time. 79 in favor, 70 in opposition, and 17 abstentions. Two weeks later, the United States of America announced that it would move the plenary of the General Assembly, not the Third Committee, meaning this is the, the body itself, to restore the words. On December 21st, the words were restored by a vote of 93 against 55, with 27 abstentions and 70 member states were not in the room, avoided the battle. 
This battle has been very closely followed by all the global networks working at the UN level. And everybody was very happy because it was a very important shift and we applauded. But it has also triggered a very interesting discussion in the global lists that discuss the UN and the global debates about the perennial exclusion of gender identity. Because once again, when the US pushed back, to although there was gender identity in the first text, when they pushed back to re-include the language, gender identity was left out, which is the perennial trend of exclusion of transgender persons of our discourse. But this is not what I want to speak of. I want to say that this debate suggests and indicate that extrajudicial killing is today an important item in our, our human rights agenda or the human rights agenda of sexual rights community, of LGBT rights community, yet when Osama bin Laden was eliminated through an extrajudicial execution by the US SEALs, though this event was widely portrayed and criticized as an extrajudicial execution by many different actors and voices, ranging from Camille Paglia, who is not somebody that I love so much, uh, to, I don't know, I mean, the spectrum of people saying this was an extrajudicial killing was pretty broad. I was really very sad of not seeing any, any strong critique on the part of the LGBT community. It's not that people have not spoken about, some people have had in, in Facebook, in some, but we have not seen a huge voice. In my view, this episode signals toward this disjunction between sexual rights and uh, as our rights exclusively our rights and the human rights agenda more broadly speaking that we need to address. Here at the UN, in our local communities. I do know that there are no easy responses to these contradictions, cracks, uh, difficulties, minefields. And I will be really very pleased to hear your views on that. Thank you very much. Well, let, I mean, let me just be the first to say an immense thank you to Sonia for 
so generously bringing together themes throughout the day and also raising a whole range of new themes that I think will take us into tomorrow and I, I, I'm slightly sort of blown away <laughs> by the different kinds of threads that you brought together so uh, persuasively and, uh, and beautifully. Uh, so I'm really relieved to see that there's already a hand <laughs> or, or several actually in, in the audience and um, I'm going to go, uh, is it Ted? Yes. yes. Uh, well, my, uh, these are really a couple of questions um, in view of what you've been saying. The first one is the, the soup of letters. I wasn't quite clear because I'm familiar with LGBT, but not LBGTQY. Uh, what are the? I. 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 Sorry. I. Yeah. Maybe I'm out of step, but I don't yeah. know what those last two mean. And maybe a sp perspective that we need to, to add to our own concept of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, being in Britain, I've not been paying that much t attention. I didn't know very much about what you've been saying about the international uh, perspectives on sexual rights. I wonder what your view is of what Kenneth Clark has said recently, the, the thing about different levels of rape. Mm. Um, because it's also connected to the slut marches that took place in the last couple of weeks about women's safety and the idea that the police and the authorities think that prostitutes are a different category of women that don't deserve the protection mm -hmm. that, that should be afforded to, to, to women generally. So. Should we collect? Again. Let's, okay, let's collect. Who else is... Uh, let's do a three Yeah, and yeah, okay, absolutely. Back. Uh, you choose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that talk. Uh, one of the themes that I was very interested in that you picked up on was you were discussing very di different, a variety of different Latin American countries um, and their response to LGBT legislation. Can, can you speak a little bit slower? Oh, sorry, yes. Um, my question was um, if we can pick up any threads from Argentina to Canada to Spain where marriage equality where successful campaigns where people enjoy marriage equality now, can we see any common threads of what organizations, LGBT organizations did? Um, granted, these are all different scenarios, but I'm just trying to get a holistic, general sense of what organizations can do globally and what has proven successful and what hasn't proven successful. Um, if you could comment on that and just point mm -hmm. out different countries and maybe commonalities between the, the campaigns. One more question, maybe at the back. Sorry. Uh, hi. Um, you were talking about the Yogacarta principles, and I wanted to know, uh, I know like the UN has adopted it, and many other, I mean, while it doesn't have a legal implication as such, many countries do use it, and more recently, like India, when it uh, repealed Section 377, kind of related to it, but can we, as activists, academics, can we make sure that it's implemented, or it has more like a legal uh, weight in other countries where it can be implemented? Okay. I think I can go to Dorothy. Um, Ted, uh, uh, there are many letters being added from what I know. There's the T for trans and, and transsexuals and transgender, there's so two T's as far as I know. And then there's the I for intersex, though the intersex community, the voices say they don't want to be part of the soup of the letters. 
or there's, there's lots of controversies about that. And when I was in San Francisco in, by accident in 2005, during the time of the gay parade, I've heard of the A, which is the asexual community requesting to be integrated into the soup of letters. So I think that the soup of letters itself is a problem. Huh? I, I try my best not to use that language. I talk about gender variance and sexual diversity because it, we have to think about it. What does it mean? That's why I was using soup of letters. In the case of Brazil, for instance, there was a, a national LGBT conference called by the government. Lots of legitimizing there. And a whole morning was spent discussing the order. Okay? If it's LGBT, OG, or LBTT, well, I think it's not very productive. Though I understand that in terms of the narrative, it has a relevance, but I don't think I'm putting it on the table. So it's, it's that. Uh, and the soup of letters is because in Brazil we call it soup of letters because there's a type of, of pasta that is letters. So we say soup of letters, so that's soup of letters. It's a very local. Um, well, yes, we have, a, as the Parker episode or the Dominic Strauss kind of episode, we can have many. We have an issue here that needs to be further discussed, which is that by and large, human rights in relation to sexuality has been almost entirely captured by its negative dimension and interpretation, which is protection against violence. And the other side, which is freedom, agency, pleasure, has been left out. And in a context where we live in, with the dogmatic religious forces on the one hand, with the policing huh, and the increasing use of public security as the norm for governance, it's not surprising that what is easily captured is the protection against violence piece. And the other one is thrown into the garbage or is not recognized. So, and here there are differences across the sexual rights community with the feminist movement, or at least sectors of the feminist movement, not having been able to get out of the box of the victimization and protection against sexual violence. It's not a whole feminist community, but large sectors. As there is also the this is a huge rift, which is the feminist position on sex work. That, as Carol Vance says, is sort of reproducing the scenario of the late 19th century, with the only difference that now is just not the white, Brit, or US-based feminist organizations that have the voice on the business, but the discourse has been captured all over the world by sectors of feminists, including in Asia, in Africa, and there's huge amount of money flowing into that pot. So here, I think the situation of sex workers around the world is really, really a topic that we need to address consistently. Um, 
successful examples. I think there are threads, where, where are you? There. I think there are threads of conversations on rights, on discrimination. There are threads. As I see it, local struggles or national struggles do not always coincide with global demands. And we have to operate into that disjunction. Sometimes it's huge conflict, sometimes some, not so much. Uh, but there have been, at the international level, though, and here I'm going to the Yogyakarta um, principles. As I said in the beginning, there, there we had the Beijing definition in 2000, in 95. Special rapporteurs have been using sexual rights language, particularly Paul Hunt did so. He has redefined sexual rights as not just applying to women, but applying to everybody. He has even included language on sexual orientation and gender identity in his definition. But the states have not sat together, as they did in, in Beijing, to sort out what is called an intergovernmental agreement, huh? which is not necessarily binding. Beijing is not binding. It's just a moral obligation. And why not? Because it's impossible. The last time we tried to do so, it was my own country, Brazil, that tabled a resolution on sexual orientation and human rights in the distinct Commission on Human Rights. The text one-page text had 55 amendments by the Organization of the Islamic Conference. The voting was postponed for the next year. We did a global campaign. We organized for that. And the Islamic countries tried to boycott Brazil, saying that if Brazil insisted on tabling the resolution, they would not go to a trade summit being organized by Lula between Latin America and the Arab countries. It was a very persuasive pressure. And Brazil retreated from tabling the resolution. This was the last time we tried to really have the, the state sitting at the UN discussing sexuality and human rights language. There's no possibility at this point for anything get out of that positively, because the political conditions do not favor. Huh? Having said that, in each and every session of the Human Rights Council and in other debates of the UN, the networks working on sexuality, on human rights, on sexual orientation, gender identity issues, are there trying to keep the debate alive. So. Countries have made a declaration in, in 2008 in New York. They did another declaration in the Human Rights Council session in March. The numbers of countries signing that declaration is increasing. Now it's 88, or, which is half of the UN. But this is not a binding document. Huh? We keep the debate going on there. But there's no political possibility at this point to adopt a text. If the text is table, it's going to be lambasted. And it's better not to table and lose it and keep it alive. So it's a very in and out huh, strategy that I think is very positive. The Yoyakata principles are part of that strategy. 
When it was clear that it was not possible to adopt a resolution and the Human Rights Council was created right after, the strategy was to bring together a number of experts in human rights, LGBT activists, and produce a text that was not produced by us. What is in that text is UN consecrated language extracted from conventions, treaties, and other documents that the states have signed on. What is the idea of the document? It's to remind states that they have signed human rights conventions, treaties, and documents that apply to everybody, including those persons whose gender identity or sexual orientation subject them to situations of violation. So the Ayurveda principles are very powerful because they are using consecrated language, but they have not been signed or debated or approved by an intergovernmental body. States are using them voluntarily. So if India or if Brazil, Brazil has translated, has not translated, has republished the, the principles, some countries, some instances are using as a guideline but it's different from a treaty or a convention. But it's very powerful. Because as I said before, people at the ground level is using the text, which means that it's meaningful for them. And some states are using. And I think it's part of the strategy of step by step having the intergovernmental bodies, maybe in 10 years, <laughs> maybe in five years, we don't know. But even if the possibilities are not there, you have to keep pressuring. Are there other questions? Can I get a sense of how many people have questions? So three, maybe we'll take all three and, and then uh, Sonia can answer and then mm -hmm. I think we should let you have a drink. Hi, Sonia. Um, <laughs> Finally. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've spoken a lot about policy here. Uh, I'm involved with an organization called the International Lesbian and Gay Cultural Network which you may have heard of. It's a spin-off mm -hmm. group from ILGA. Um, and the ILGCN has been very active in uh, trying to promote lesbian and gay culture. And so in environments where there's often a very hostile environment for lesbian and gay people, uh, the ILGCN will try to get local people organizing uh, uh, maybe an exhibition of a, a gay painter. And so gay people mm -hmm. would come together to see an exhibition and then they can network and liaise. And that's been a very effective model that we've found. So, uh, my question is about culture. I think that um, uh, the political apparatus follows sort of the broader culture, the greater culture, and I think that lesbian and gay culture, uh, we want to see sort of uh, support uh, networks, something that uh, develops that on a, on a stronger way. I'd be interested in your thoughts on, uh, on that subject. Yes, thank you for, for the talk. First, uh, an observation from research in many uh, movement literature that also linked to the conversation this afternoon um, is really, I think, sometimes disturbing. I, I have no explanation of that, that when the right, I mean, the right discourse has always been there, but uh, it has changed. And for instance, peep uh, movement in the 70s were not talking about citizenship. And sometimes I'm a bit worried when you have this talk about citizenship or the legal way of talking about rights, because then you have 
the disappearance of some more political concepts, such as oppression mm -hmm. or certainly liberation. Uh, and then on that, uh, I was a bit, I would like to know more, also because I have no questions about the way you, you articulate citizenship rights and human rights being two different concepts, uh, one relying on states and the other not. And based on that, you have talked about the UN, but I think certainly in Europe, um, Interna uh, international organizations are extremely important, especially the EU and the Council of Europe. And the UK is probably one mm -hmm. of the countries where this influence has been the most important in, in Europe. And from that, when you were talking about same-sex marriage and, and other things, well, because I, I've also worked on, on same-sex marriage for a couple of years, and I'm more and more worried about this kind of transnational and international politics of same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. because you have claims traveling around and which is really disturbing is I have the impression more and more that they become disconnected from local priorities. Uh, for instance, I'm invited in two weeks uh, to Warsaw by uh, the Flemish government to talk about the Belgian experience. But uh, they, I think they want me to uh, explain a kind of export, export product. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when I was in Chile two years ago, uh, and I was talking with local activists, and they were explaining to me that they were kind of imposed to talk about same-sex marriage and to claim and to, to, to ask for same-sex marriage, although it was not a priority at the time uh, there. Okay. It's me? No, I think that there was There's another question. Else, no? and this, has, this is the last um, question. Hi. I've made a lot of uh, scrappy notes, and I want to um, go through some form of uh, historical analysis. At the end of World War II, the world split in the Cold War through uh, socialism and a social democratic management of capitalism. And the social democratic management of capitalism tried to generate welfare. And within that context, um, gay liberation and the feminist movement um, arose because uh, issues beyond poverty came up. Um, and um, the impact on the third world was um, more uh, secular states within the Middle East, for instance. And um, with the collapse of uh, Eastern Europe, it seemed to me uh, there was perceived to be a collapse of Marxism and orthodox religions, is Islam and Christianity went to fill the vacuum and um, organized discontent in different ways and maybe in ways of violence. And um, within the Western world and capitalism, um, instead of uh, social reform of economy, it took the, um, uh, the sort of mode of um, civil partnerships and gay marriages as a, uh, as a substitute for um, uh, so, uh, economic social democracy. Um, Tony Blair adopted the Thatcherite global mo model and uh, invented a new form of um, social democracy. I mean, they're, they're comments, but um, do you think uh, the collapse of Marxism has left, such, uh, has, uh, left a huge vacuum? that has caused uh, a lot of the tumult um, internationally. Quite hard for you to May I? connect these, but please try to yeah. in, in three or four yeah. minutes. I'll try my <laughs> best. Oh. Should, I, should I flee? <laughs> um, on culture, yes. I do think it's very important to 
in many ways, different ways, as best as we can to enlarge the spaces and create cultures that are respectful of gender variance and sexual diversity. Having said that, and I know this topic may come back tomorrow because I, I see the, the name of people in the list of speakers, I'm very nervous about promoting LGBT culture because there's an issue there with the vocabulary. And there's also a wrong supposition there. The cultures that are not, that are very violent or not open to gender variance and sexual diversity do not have their own forms of sexual diversity and gender variance. If you go across the world in India or Southeast Asia and even our region, gender variance and sexual diversity has been always there. In different ways, asymmetries, hierarchies, yes, maybe not experience much space, but they were there. So I'm a little bit nervous about the imposition of the terminology huh? because I don't think that the world will be necessarily better huh, for everybody if the model of gay culture of San Francisco is spread all over. I'm, I'm just exaggerating here. I love San Francisco. I love what happens there. There's nothing against San Francisco. I'm just saying that I don't see as as a model to be transported. Huh? And I think doing global work, we have to be very careful with respect to that. Between human rights and citizenship rights, this is a very easy one. Uh, citizenship rights, as I understand, are bounded by the nation state. I ask citizenship rights to a state, if a state exists huh? and is workable, which is not the case everywhere. Huh? Uh, human rights, my line of think is really inspired by Anna Harent. Human rights is the right of each and every human being. Never mind where you're born. Never mind if you have an identity card. Never mind if you're in a boat floating around like the Rohingyas or if you're a Roman person being evicted from France back to nowhere. And so human, when you're talking human rights, national sovereignty or the state ability to grant you prerogatives or an identity, it, it's not just that. And I think this is not a minor issue when we are talking about sexual variance and gender, di and sexual vari diversity and gender variance, and for everybody. Huh? Well, the last question, um, yes, I think that I don't think that the demise of real socialism as it was uh, is the problem. I think that what we have lost somehow is a more deep sense of social justice and commitment to equality in a broader sense. And I think it's important to rescue that. Would Derrida talk about the specters of Marx? <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful book if you have not read. He talks about human rights and Marx throughout. 
But I disagree with you. I do not think that what I call the return of the religious is an effect of the demise of Marxism or of, of real socialism. I think this is more complex and maybe in half a minute I don't have time to say what I think about it. But I really do think that Marxist thinkers, liberal thinkers, the spectrum is very varied. It ranges from Marx himself to Anna Arendt, have made a bet on the inexorable secularization of societies that didn't match. And it's, it was very hard for me personally to admit that because I myself was one of the persons believing faithfully <laughs> that secularity would be inexorable. And I have to cope with the reality that religion has not gone away and it's not and did not came back. It has been always there. It's transformation in dogmatic religion in the form that we witness, which is a very peculiar form, is something else. But this is something we need to cope with in a different manner than we did in the 60s or the 70s. And I would add, I agree with Gadama, who in the very last text on the issue, Gadama, the German philosopher, specialist in Hegel, that one factor explaining the sad return of the religion religious in the form of dogmatism is a collateral effect of compulsory secularity and laicity. Is the retour of the refoulé. It happened in Mexico, and I have Arturo sitting in front of me, no? It happened throughout Eastern Europe, um, and also in, in some other settings. And I don't know what may happen in China, for instance. And I witnessed something, signs of that in Vietnam recently. So I think we have to be very careful to do those simplified analysis about Marxism is gone and religion is come back, because I don't think it's so simple. Um, can I ask us to uh, thank Sonia uh, again for an incredibly evocative talk and for answering our questions so generously and invite you all to join us upstairs on the sixth floor of the old building across the road in the Shaw Library. Uh, we will take you, yes. <laughs> so it just remains to thank Sonia once again. Thank you.